You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. In the late 1990s, there was a book written called A Different Drum by a man named M. Scott Peck. Some of you might have heard of him. Uh, he wrote the book called A Road Less Traveled. I love this guy. He's a, he's a Christian, a renowned author, and a psychologist, and he just masterfully uh, combines those areas of his life into many books. So in A Different Drum, he speaks specifically about how communities are formed. And he says that any type of community, whether it's a husband and wife, whether it's a parent-child, uh, whether it's a church or a small group within a church or an office workplace, say any type of community with two or more people, um, that it is subject to the same stages of community formation in the same order. Okay, so we have this graphic on the screen and it, it shows kind of what I'm talking about here. The first stage, he says, is called pseudo-community. Pseudo meaning uh, fake, false, superficial, shallow, in a sense. And this isn't a criticism. It's not a bad thing. It's just a reality that all relationships start out in a type of pseudo-community. And the goal, all right, the, the collective goal of this type of relationship is avoiding conflict. Right? And we all know this. This is uh, in uh, relationships between lovers. This might be known as the honeymoon phase. Everything's good. Everything's gravy. It's easy. Um, it's fun. And we just, we avoid conflict. But in every other type of relationship, it's the same. Um, the word that I like to, to use is clean. It's just clean. We haven't gone far enough together. We haven't gone deep enough together to really get past this type of pseudo-community, right? And so <clears throat> there's some benefits in that it's clean and it's easy and it's comfortable, but we also sacrifice individuality and honesty and depth. Okay, so we all, we all get that. Um, he says, if we spend enough time together, every community, every relationship will move into the second stage that he calls chaos. And we all know this phase too. This is where um, we no longer can avoid conflict. Conflict, uh, it just arises as individuality starts to arise. We start to notice things in each other that we maybe didn't notice before. Or maybe uh, we are just no longer able to bite our tongue. Um, but this is not easy. It's not fun. It's very difficult. Um, and it's tempting to bail, right? So in chaos, we have a couple choices. And he says, sometimes what we're tempted to do, like I said, is to bail. If we have the option, we say, you know what? This church is just, it's, there's too much conflict in it. I'm just going to leave and I'm going to go find another church, okay? Um, or we might say, this person isn't the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. Um, you know, we, we hit conflict and I'm just, I've, so we bail if we have that option. But maybe it benefits us in some way to stay in the relationship and instead we go back into pseudo-community. And I'm going to propose this morning that this is uh, probably what happens most often in the church. Um, and, and again, not always in a bad way. Chaos isn't a bad thing. It's not a criticism. It's just a necessary second stage. But that oftentimes when we hit it, our tendency is to bail or go backwards and say, I like the way this was. I'm going to keep enough distance so that we can avoid conflict and, and we can keep it clean and we can avoid mess, all right? But he says the better option the better option is to move forward, is to move through the conflict, conflict, through the chaos, and into what Peck calls true community. 
Now, true community can only be had with a certain number of people in our lives, and that's just a reality, too. Um, even, even this community that we have, it's a fantastic community. There's a sense to all of us sitting here, yes, we are a community, and we're a real community, but it's pseudo in a sense that I, we don't have the capacity um, to go deeper with each other, right? But with those people that we do, what does true community look like? Well, he says, it's, yeah, it's difficult. We don't avoid chaos. We don't avoid conflict, but we're able to argue. We're able to fight with grace. We're able to do it gracefully. It's a place where, because we're committed to one another, we can do these things. We can work through our issues without fear of abandonment. We can be ourselves. We can be honest with one another. We can talk about things that really matter and really strike to the core because we're not afraid of us leaving each other, right? It's a place where we can all really be sanctified and become more like God as we strive to to be better and help each other be better. Now, the operating principle of true community then is love. It's a place where we learn to be loved in the deepest, realest way, in a place where we can actually learn to love. And we do so not by avoiding chaos, not by going backwards, but by going forwards. So I want to read this text this morning. It's going to be our main text today. It's in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. To give you some context, this is the last night that Jesus is with his disciples. We're very familiar with this night, uh, most of us. He has just recently washed his disciples' feet. He's just recently had dinner with them, the Last Supper. Uh, Judas has just left the table to go betray Jesus. And Jesus says just before these verses that now is the Son of Man to be glorified. It's it's time that I'm going to go, and I'm going to leave you with a command. And here's what he says. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love each other. This verse always strikes me because it's like this... He spent three years with his disciples. He's been teaching them, um, been showing them how to do these miracles. And you, you can imagine what their minds were filled with. And as, as Jesus is getting ready to leave, it's like, what are we going to do? And he says, there's one thing that I want you to do. Just love each other. One thing, one commitment, just love each other. And personally, I, f- I find this verse, uh, it always speaks to me because it's so easy to get caught up in what it means to be a Christian, right? And it, it, religious activity, um, striving for certain things in life, even if they're godly things, it seems, and I forget that really, what is it all about at the end of the day? It's about love. I think, uh, how many of you have seen Finding Nemo? Show of hands. All right, a decent amount. Okay, it's an animated movie with fish, and there's one fish named Dory who's got a memory issue. All right, uh, she can't remember anything for longer than like 10 seconds, but they're on this journey to go find Nemo, her friend Nemo, and they come across this pair of goggles that has the address of the scuba diver that took Nemo. All right, so, so she's reading this address. It's a fish that can read, and uh, it's, it's P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney. That's the address, P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney, and she has to keep reminding herself Again and again, right, as she reads it, she gets it, and for the next day, P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney, because if she doesn't say it, after 10 seconds, she's going to forget it. 
All right, she's got some memory problems. And I feel like that sometimes as a Christian. And Jesus is just saying, look, remember the address. Remember the goal. It's love. Forget about all this other stuff. There's one thing I want you to remember. It's love each other. Love each other. Think about um, 1 Corinthians 13, the verse we're all pretty familiar with. Um, where Paul says love is patient, love is kind, it's enduring, etc. He says there's faith, hope, and love, but among these, love is the most important because without love, none of this matters. Paul even goes as far to say, he gives some examples, he even goes as far to say that you can die for God, you can be a martyr, but if it's not done in love, it's all for nothing, and that's how important this type of love is. John says in 1 John chapter 4, that if we don't love one another, that's actually the very evidence that we don't love God. If we don't love one another, he makes this very clear, that is the evidence that we don't love God. Now Jesus goes on and he says, by doing this, by loving each other as I have loved you, the world will know that you are my disciples. It's not by uh, the amount of scripture that you memorized. It's not by uh, how many times a day you pray. It's not by how many t-shirts you wear that have Christian stuff on it or how, what we post on social media. Um, it's not those things. It's, it's by the way that you love each other that the world will know that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ, that we are the church. And I think in this passage there's an emphasis on each other as he speaks in the upper room to his disciples, get this, okay, I, yes, we're supposed to love everybody. Everybody out in the world, inside the church, outside the church, but here Jesus emphasizes you guys, love each other, those of you within the community. And I think this is utterly relevant for us today. I, I think of um, what happened in Charlottesville a couple of weekends ago, and I'm not gonna make any political statements or anything like that, but, uh, Look, the world, our world is starving for an example of community that works. There is so much uh, polarization and there's so much um, social unrest right now. And there's differences that people just don't know how to work through. Our, the, the world that we live in is in chaos. Our country is in chaos. All right, because these things that we kept hidden for a while are starting to come to surface. Honesty is coming out. People are, uh, have no problem speaking their mind. And as a Christian, sometimes I'm so frustrated. I say, well, how, do I, how do I do anything about this? And I just don't feel like I'm called to join some movement. I don't feel like I'm supposed to start some new organization. That's, I don't know, honestly, I don't know how systemically we are to fix this issue. Even Christians are spread all across the board, incredibly divided on these types of issues and on the social unrest. But here, it all becomes clear to me. It's like, what the world needs is one community somewhere who's doing it, where people are different, where their individuality is, is celebrated and accepted, all different backgrounds and ages and races and ethnicities, but they don't just tolerate each other, they share their lives together. 
and they thrive and they live in harmony. And that is what Jesus has called us, the community of believers, to do and to be through love. And this is a very unique kind of love. I, I believe it's a type of love that the world has not seen or does not see often. So I want to go back to M. Scott Peck. And in his other book uh, that I've read, which is called the, uh, uh, the Road Less Traveled, he has a definition of love um, in a whole, whole middle section of the book where he talks about it in detail. But his definition of love, I think, is very important. And we're going to talk about this as it relates to a biblical understanding of what really is love. Okay. He says, it is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. And if you could just leave that slide up as I talk about it, I'd, I'd appreciate it. There are a few components here that we're just going to breeze through. The first of which is the will. The will. And he says the will is, is more than just a desire. Okay? It's more than just a desire. It has to be because we have multiple desires, right? We have competing desires. For lunch, um, you know, I want to have a salad, good, good healthy chicken salad, take care of my body. But I also want Smoking Bob's Barbecue down the road. I want them both for different reasons. And which one's going to win? Usually it's probably Smoking Bob's Barbecue, but... Um, whichever one wins, whichever desire is of a sufficient intensity to result in action, that was my will. Does that make sense? So the will is a desire of sufficient intensity that it wins out over the other desires and results in an action. That means that love is more than a feeling. It is more than just emotions. And this is essential to the Christian understanding of love. It has to be more than just feelings. It must result in action. This is how Jesus can say, love your enemies. You don't have to like them. You don't have to have fuzzy feelings for them. You, you just have to love them. Action, action-oriented. It's the will to extend oneself. This is the second component. To extend oneself, to give of oneself. Paul might write in Philippians, he talks about emptying yourself. Counting others is more significant than yourself. There's sacrifice, sacrificial language in our understanding of love. In fact, in John 15, Jesus even says, the greatest love that there is is to lay down one's life for a friend. So by definition, our love has to be sacrificial. It's active. It's sacrificial. It's dying to ourselves for others. And then lastly, for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth for the purpose of nurturing spiritual growth. I think this is really important, and I think uh, this is particularly what makes this type of love that I think Jesus is calling to distinct. Is that we must have a concern for not just the body and the temporal life, of those in our lives, but for the condition and the state of their soul, of their relationship with God, and that love involves those things which are more than just the things that we can see and touch and feel, but the intangibles, the mind and the heart and the state of a person, and really how holy and sanctified are we? 
Are we becoming better people? And are we helping each other become better people? Now, as I talk about spirituality and the soul, I don't want to act as if it's separate from the body, okay? Because a basic Christian doctrine is that the body and the soul are intricately involved with one another, okay? And and mysteriously almost. You, You can't have one without the other, all right? But our ministries to each other, our love for one another must have a focus on spirituality, on our relationship with God. And it stems from love, ultimately, it stems from a desire for the people in our lives to be formed into the image of Christ before us. Let's read Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is Paul writing about marriage, which is probably the most intimate community, but we can draw a lot from this, okay? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see that sacrificial language. Why did Christ give himself up for the church that he might, for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Leave up that last slide for just a second. Think about the relationships, the closest relationships that you have to people in your lives. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend, someone in the church. Is this happening? Do we see the people that we're loving becoming more and more like the person described here, without spot, without blemish, the holiness, the sanctification? This is what it means, really, to love each other. And then it begs the question, what does it take to get there? I believe it takes uh, intentionality. It takes communication. It takes really talking about these things. It doesn't just happen. Now, I've got two passions in life. A lot of hobbies. I'm a hobbyist, but two passions, two real passions, one of which is preaching. And the reason I love preaching is um, is because I love the process of hearing God's word understanding it, interpreting it, and sharing it with so many people. It's such a large, such a broad range I'm able to share God's word with. And I believe that when we talk about these things, they're more than just the things we're used to talking about. When people have an encounter with the real living, breathing word of God, that we change, that we're elevated to be better human beings. I really believe that. And so this, in one way, me preaching is just, it's my main way of loving the masses, of loving the church, of seeing spirituality be formed in people. But I will say that this is much easier and much cleaner than my other passion. My second passion is what I call uh, intentionally pursuing God on a regular basis in relationship with others. And what I mean by this is, is it can take a lot of different forms, um, but it is, it's, it's meeting with people, a set number of people. Right now, it's about 10 or 12 people in my life. I never go more than that. Jesus only had 12 that he really did this with. You meet regularly. You have conversation. You share lives together. You confess your sins specifically together. 
You hold one another accountable. You talk about the things that aren't great. You don't avoid conflict, but you pursue God by all means together. You learn to love each other, to forgive, to be patient. That's what this is all about. And the reason that preaching is so much easier than this is because I can say whatever God tells me to, and it's up to you to decide whether or not it applies. It's pretty, it's pretty non-offensive, you know? But when you're in relationship with someone, like really close, and you realize something that's going on in their lives, and God says, you know, you need to speak into that. Whoa, that's a lot harder. You can immediately sense the conflict, but it's necessary. We need others to speak into our lives in the same way, on, on a, in a personal way. Much different than just hearing a preacher preach. But that type of community forming that type of community, seeking the true community where we can learn to love together, for me has been by far the most life-changing aspect of my faith. And I've received and I've given, and when I tell you I'm passionate about this, I mean it. I want you to know, um, I, I wrote down a list of all the people that I've had these types of relationships with throughout the last four and a half years. And um, I may have missed a couple, but 54 in four and a half years. I wrote a list, and you don't need to know the names, but I'm so glad I was 54 because there's 27 lines, and I got exactly, I, seriously, I only had 53 for like three days, and I'm racking my brain because I had to, had to fill up both columns. And I say this not to boast. I say this not to boast. I say this to let you know that I'm a practitioner. I really, really believe in this type of community. And, and these are all different ages. I mean, like literally every end of the spectrum of, rate, of ages and of gender and of different backgrounds. And you name some of these, I've been more in a giving relationship. Some I've been more receiving um, advice. Some have been more mutual. I've done it um, in groups of just one-on-one. -on -one. I've done it 10, you know, just all together. I've, all different kinds of forms. There's no particular form that's the best, but I'm telling you, there's no greater thing in life than seeing people formed into the image of Christ in front of you and them being able to see that in you too. I know it from experience. And I've, I've vowed a long time ago between God and me and so many others that I will never stop doing this until the day that I die. I, I really believe it is that important. So at Schweitzer, um, our staff, our community, the leaders in this church really do also believe in the importance of these types of relationships. Um, and they can happen anywhere, all right? One example of this is, so a lot of you are already doing this, all right? But Kayla and me, my, my wife and me, we started doing this um, about three years ago. Uh, it doesn't have to be in an organized fashion. Every Saturday, we sit down for an hour or two, and we just talk. And we don't just talk about, you know, surface-level things. We really get into it, and we ask each other questions like, what, how can I be a better husband to you? And sometimes the answer hurts, we ask each other questions like, how was your relationship with God? You know, last week you told me um, you were going to pray every day this week. You know, why didn't you do that? And we look out for each other. We care for each other's souls. We work through chaos. And it was incredibly hard and still is sometimes to have those conversations. But I'm telling you, when we don't do it, we suffer. And when we do it, we, we really do experience at least a sense of this true community that I think we're called to. So it can happen in your marriage. I might even argue, if you are married, that it, it needs to happen there first, if possible, if possible. 
But at Schweitzer, we're creating this new model. We talked briefly about it last week, and it's called Covenant Discipleship Groups. Um, this model is just a tool. It's not the end-all, be-all, you know, perfect way. But we want to help this community to enter into these types of relationships and experience and really learn how to love each other. I think the problem that, that um, some churches who create these models do so and such, it's so structured and rigid that um, there's no way really to even have conflict, right? It's all about, we don't want the mess. We want to avoid that. And so, but we sacrifice depth, all right? And if you sign up for one of these groups, what you'll learn pretty quickly is that we don't try to avoid the mess. We don't want to, we, we're going to tackle it head on. If we're really doing this thing, if we're really meeting with multiple people on a weekly basis to talk about our soul and to watch out for one another's souls, um, I think we'll realize pretty quickly that the mess is unavoidable. It's actually a necessary step of experiencing true Christian community, really learning to be loved and learning to love. Now, as we talk about this ministry of covenant discipleship groups, I want you to know um, if you're interested in this, uh, we're not just asking you to just commit to a group right away. Um, there's a class. There's a four-week class. And you can even just show up to the first one if you want. Um, it's going to start September 10th. It's from 12 to noon, 12.15 to noon for four weeks. And at the end of the four weeks, you can decide whether or not you want to commit. We did one of these over the summer. It went really well. You'll have a much better understanding of whether or not you're ready for this type of thing. Um, I don't think you have to be any level of spiritual maturity for this. You just have to be ready to experience true community. Be willing to go deeper than we're used to going in most of our relationships. But I think it's totally worth it. Um, there is childcare and lunch. Please know that. There is childcare and lunch during those times. If you would, direct your attention to the screens. We're going to watch a video of a member of our community who's experienced this. So, Alec, you're in a covenant discipleship group. Tell yeah. me about it. Um, basically, I'm in a small group of guys, and we meet up once a week, and we basically just participate in fellowship together. We have a covenant that we follow, and hence covenant discipleship groups. Um, and that's just something for structure in our talks each week, but it has things on it like pray daily, read scripture daily, come to church each week. Nothing super hard, but... Um, it just really helps the discussions that we have and guides those discussions each week. So covenant discipleship groups are not for necessarily the mature person or the person that's got to get their act together before you join. It's no. For anybody. Yeah, anybody. I really think it's for someone who really wants to take that next step in their faith. Um, the person who has you know a hunger and a desire for learning more about and just... Um, being closer and being in a more loving relationship with Jesus Christ. You've been on staff for about six months, and yeah. so I get to hang out with you a little bit and observe you, and, and I've just seen you grow uh, in just a short time you've been with us, and it's really exciting to see, and Covenant Discipleship Groups is part of that. Correct, yes, very much part of that. So I actually uh, just thought of this, so, so bear with me, but I think it's, I think it's a good illustration. Um, one of my favorite chapters in a C.S. Lewis book called The Great Divorce. Um, well, The Great Divorce, okay, it's about all of these people who find themselves in hell at the beginning of the book. And they take this bus ride up to the outskirts of heaven. 
All right, and through each chapter, you meet a new one of these characters, and there's an angel who is coming to each of these characters, inviting them into heaven for eternity. In every chapter, um, you see again and again how the people who've, who were originally in hell, they, they turned down the invitation for one reason or another, the opportunity to go to heaven. Well, in one of these chapters, uh, we come across a mother, a mom, whose child was taken from her back in her earthly life at an early age. And you find out pretty quickly the reason that she found herself in hell was that she held on to this anger and resentment at God throughout her whole life. She wanted nothing to do with God. But she said, I I just love my son so much. God can't possibly know how much I love my son. And the angel says, well, actually he's inviting you into his presence with your son. You have an opportunity here. You can be with your son. She says, no, I can't possibly do that. He doesn't understand how much I love my son. I need him with me, and he needs to come back with me. And this mother, um, she leaves sad, she leaves angry, and she leaves under the delusion that she loves her son so much that she would rather have him in hell with her for eternity. Love, the loving action, was the one where she would have found herself surrendered to God and in his presence for eternity, and also with her son. That's, that's what love is. And the story depicts um, a sad but yet accurate version of love that I think our world defines as love all too often. So let us be different. Let our love be different. Let it be so unique that the world must know that we are the disciples of Christ. I want to leave you with three questions. First of which is who loves you on a regular basis? Active, sacrificial, seeking your sanctification, caring for your soul. Who prays for you on a regular basis? Who challenges you? Who can you confess to? Second is who do you love on a regular basis? Right? We have this need. We also have this responsibility to create more of this community. Who are you praying for? Whose soul are you caring for? Who are you challenging and holding accountable? And the last question is, is it obvious to the world that you, that we, are followers of Christ based on the distinct way that members in our Christian community love one another? Take a second to think about those thoughts.